The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Indeed, we gather here in the nave of Marsh Chapel, 735 Commonwealth Avenue, across the airwaves of WBUR 90.9 FM, and via internet signals at WBUR.org, with hearts and voices lifted up in the praise of God. This week, we continue our National Summer Preacher Series, focusing around the theme of Darwin and faith in this year of the bicentennial of Darwin's birth and sesquicentennial of the publication of his landmark On the Origin of Species. We welcome again to the pulpit today the Reverend Dr. Dean Snyder, Senior Minister of Foundry United Methodist Church in Washington, D.C. Furthermore, Mr. Justin Blackwell leads the Marsh Chapel Choir in music, bringing out the theme of creation, especially selections from Franz Joseph Haydn's oratorio, The Creation. Soloists this morning are Miss Laura Godfrey, Mr. Jeff Nardone, and Mr. Graham Wright. Dean Hill sends his regards as he is away in these weeks, preaching the gospel in the voice of Marsh Chapel across the country. As you are so moved, we would invite your participation in our life together by presence, response, support, and ministry among us. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God.
Let us pray. Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, you know our necessities before we ask and our ignorance in asking. Have compassion on our weakness and mercifully give us those things which for our unworthiness we dare not and for our blindness we cannot ask. Through the worthiness of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated for a time of silent confession during the singing of the Kyrie. Friends, if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. Now God did not subject the coming world, about which we are speaking, to angels, but someone has testified somewhere, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, or mortals? that you care for them. You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared same, the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, power of death, that is, the devil, and free all those 
who their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself was tested by what he suffered. He is able to help those who are being tested. The word of the Lord.
Let us pray together Psalm 23 with the Antiphon. shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. For the singing of the Gloria Dei, the reading of the Gospel, and the singing of our chapter 6, verses 30 to 34, and 53 to 56. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. 
and they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored the boat. When they got out of the boat, people at once recognized him and rushed about that whole region and began to bring the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages or cities or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they may touch even the fringe of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you. Jane and I are uh, grateful for the hospitality of uh, the wonderful staff of this chapel and the hospitality of this congregation uh, over during our time in Boston. You do uh, Bob Hill proud. Please uh, allow us to turn, uh, return the favor. Uh, visit us at Foundry Church uh, when you are in Washington, D.C. Our theme this summer is Faith in Darwin. Our topic this morning is the limits of our exceptionalism. There are those who believe that religions can be understood sociologically, anthropologically, except for Christianity. Other religions are humanity's search for God, while Christianity is God's search for humanity. This way of thinking could be called Christian exceptionalism, 
Religions are human endeavors, except for mine. If one nation consumes significantly more than the rest of the world and has a foreign policy based on keeping its citizens' desire to consume sated, and if this nation uses its military to police its foreign policy, this nation would usually be called an empire. If we say that nations that become empires are inevitably oppressive of others, except for my nation, because my nation, unlike other nations, is good and well-intentioned, this would be called nationalistic exceptionalism. A Boston University professor named Andrew J. Basevich has written what is surely one of the most important books of our decade, a retired colonel, a student of the writing of Reinhold Niebuhr, a long-term opponent of the war in Iraq, the father of a soldier who gave his life in Iraq. His book is entitled The Limits of Power. It is subtitled The End of American Exceptionalism. Galtism, the idea that the rich are rich because they are superior to the poor, this is an exceptionalist way of thinking. There are lots of examples. One of the reasons Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species was so shocking at the time that it was published 150 years ago, and one of the reasons that it continues to be at the center of the cultural wars of our time is that Darwin's theories challenge and undermine pretty much every expression of exceptionalism. Darwin discovered in his study of nature a radical egalitarianism. Life has evolved the way it has, not because some forms of life were especially ordained or superior, but simply because the organisms that are best adapted to their environment tend to produce more offspring, while those less well suited tend to diminish. You know, the phrase, the survival of the fittest, does not mean the survival of those who go to the gym the most. It means the survival of those who happen to fit best within the environment in which they find themselves. It could just as well be called the survival of the luckiest, the survival of those species that find themselves in the time and place that happen to fit them best. Not divine selection, not moral selection, not even intelligent selection. I've known some folk who were exceedingly intelligent who have not tended to produce more offspring. Watch an episode of the TV show The Big Bang sometime. Not selection by any merit, but natural selection. Eugenie Scott, the executive director of the National Center for Science Education, says Darwin's theory challenged the notions of human exceptionalism and brought to light this idea that humans are a result of natural processes, meaning we are not as special as we once thought. Well, what do we think about this, those of us 
who read poetry and pray and sing hymns and listen to sermons? Well, clearly we human beings are special. It wasn't raccoons that built this beautiful chapel. It wasn't chipmunks who wrote the music that we heard the choir sing this morning. Of course, we are special, just maybe not as special as we once thought we were. Whatever else we are, we're animals too. We need to eat. I traveled in Africa some with a bishop I used to work with who had visited Africa many, many times. I asked him once why he third thought a certain African nation kept electing an obviously corrupt president. He said that when you have experienced starvation, you will elect anyone you think will feed you. And this is not that different, is it, from the it's the economy stupid election campaigns here in the US. We have to eat. We don't have to be enslaved by our appetites, but we usually get in trouble if we try to deny they exist. I know eating disorders are a complicated thing, and I don't want to treat their causes in a trivial way. But the Jungian therapist Marion Woodman, who was anorexic as a young woman, Marion Woodman believes that one of the things that food disorders and their prevalence in our society symbolizes is a desire on our part not to be bound to the earth, not to be dirty, not to make dirt, not to be human. The prevalence of food disorders symbolizes a desire to be more than human, to be angels, to be gods. She calls it an addiction to perfection. We don't have to be enslaved by our appetites, but as my mother used to say, you've got to eat. I knew an exceptional person years ago who starved himself to death as a protest against homelessness in America. I never want to see such an exceptional thing happen again. Whatever else we are, we are animals too. And part of it is that we are sexual. We don't need to be slaves to our sexual drives and feelings, but it's generally not a very good idea to pretend they don't exist. You know who was very uh, practical and down to earth about this? Some of you will be surprised. The Apostle Paul, I'm not kidding. Apparently for some of his life, Paul was celibate and he writes in one of his letters that he wishes all Christians could be like him in this way so that they could focus all of their time and energies on ministry. But then he adds this proviso. However, he says, it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. It is not a good idea to pretend that you are not sexual. It is better to find healthy ways of expressing our sexuality. It seems to me a pretty enlightened way of thinking for the times, admittedly Victoria in a guy sort of way, but still. I think if Paul knew what we know today, he would agree with Massachusetts and Connecticut and Idaho. 
It is not a good idea to expect human beings not to be sexual. Whatever else we are, we are animals too. We are sexual, and we are subject to the vicissitudes of earthly existence. We have not figured out yet how to do away with disease and death. I miss Sue's Abel. Sue was an ordained uh, clergy person and a seminary professor, but she plunged into congregational life the way any rank-and-file Christian would. Sue even took a turn at chairing our finance committee. You know how rare it is to find a seminary professor who'd be willing to chair a local church finance committee or capable? Sue got cancer and too soon died. You know the scripture that she used to quote to me the most as she was fighting her cancer? She quoted the words of Jesus saying that God makes God's son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Cancer happens, disease happens, death happens. We can study disease and try to eradicate it, and we should. But apparently God or nature does not accept us from natural disasters, disease, physical anomalies, congenital disorders, or any of the rest of it. Apparently, God or nature does not dole out diseases to those who deserve them or grant good health to those who deserve that. We are not accepted. A friend uh, sent me this week a photo of someone's great-grandmother sitting in front of her birthday cake with three candles on the cake. The candles are in the shapes of the letters 100, spelling out 100. In the picture, she is leaning forward toward the cake, using the flame of the second candle to light her cigarette. Go figure. I love listening to your choir on your podcast, but on the treadmill at the gym, I sometimes listen to a British guitar player and songwriter named Mark Knopfler. I like him because his lyrics are often a combination of profundity and just plain fun. He wrote these lyrics. Sometimes you're the windshield. Sometimes you're the bug. Sometimes it all comes together, baby. Sometimes you're a fool in love. Sometimes you're the Louisville slugger. Sometimes you're the ball. Sometimes it all comes together, baby. Sometimes you're going to lose it all. Apparently, God doesn't make the sunshine on the good or grant them health and wealth and advanced degrees. Nor does God make it rain or send trouble and hardship to only the unrighteous. Apparently, God doesn't make an exception for you or me. So where is God in all of this, in natural selection, in evolution? That is, of course, too big a question to answer 
in one sermon, but I think there are a couple of hints in the book of Hebrews as to where God might be in the midst of natural selection and evolution. I turn to the book of Hebrews because it asks the question, what is man, what is woman, what is a human being? But I found there some hints to the answer to the questions, to the question of where God is. The book of Hebrews says, and I think this is absolutely delightful. The book of Hebrews says, now God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels. God did not subject the coming world of which we are speaking to angels. And then later, talking about Jesus, Hebrews says, it is clear he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Whatever God is doing in the universe, it's not in the angelic realms of elevated and lofty sentiments and nobility. It's not in the rarefied purity of heavenly places. It is in the world where whatever else we are, we are animals and we are sexual, and where we are sometimes healthy and full of life, and where we sometimes get sick and die. No exceptions. This world, the world of windshields and bugs and Louisville sluggers and balls. Warren Zevon was another songwriter. His lyrics, too, were often smart and funny. For much of his life, he abused substances severely, and then later in life found sobriety and then was diagnosed with a particularly virulent form of cancer. He knew he was dying. He agreed to go on the David Letterman show. It was an amazing interview. Zevon talked with Letterman openly and with a sense of humor about his impending death. At one point in the interview, Letterman asked Zevon, is there anything you know from the place you are at now that I might not know that you could tell me. In other words, at the edge of death, is there any knowledge that you have discovered that you can share with me who will someday be where you are now? Zevan said, not really. The only advice I can give you is enjoy every sandwich. Where is God in the world of natural selection and evolution? I think God is in the sandwich. Isn't this what we Christians say we believe, that God is in the bread and the wine? God is in the sandwich. Every four years, Methodists elect delegates to national and regional conferences where they pass the rules of the church and elect bishops. Back in Washington, D.C., there was a very funny resolution that some people wrote that we will be voting on next year. The resolution says that Methodist clergy shall not campaign to be elected as delegates to general or jurisdictional conferences, neither shall they campaign to be elected as bishops. This is a very funny resolution. Passing a law that Methodist clergy should not jockey for position 
and power and prestige within the church is like passing a law that hound dogs should not sniff nor monkeys scratch. I think that God is somewhere in the midst of grubby church politics. God is in the midst of the fervent departmental wars in this university. God is in the midst of the wheeling and dealing in the halls of Congress. Whatever God is doing in our world, God isn't doing it in the realm of the lofty and angelic. God is doing it in the world where we eat and mate and practice politics. God is in the bread and the wine, and we ought to taste every bite, laugh at everything that's funny, cry about all of the sadness. God is in the sandwich. You notice in our gospel lesson this morning that when Jesus invites his disciples to go with him to a deserted place, by the time he gets there, the crowds have already found him. And it turns out that God is in the people milling around him and trying to touch the hem of his garment. God is in the midst of life in this world. The other hint I see in Hebrews is that God is somewhere in the rules to which we are subjected. Not the rules we make, but the rules we can't do anything about. The rules with no exceptions. God is somewhere in the rule that when the humidity in the air reaches a certain point at a certain temperature, it's going to rain on us whether we are righteous or unrighteous. God is somewhere in the rule that determines the sun is going to set at 8.16 p.m. tonight in Boston, whether we are good or bad the rest of the day today. Test it if you will. Be as good or as bad as you can be today, and the sun will still set at 8.16 p.m. in Boston tonight. No matter whether we are righteous or unrighteous during the night tonight, the sun is going to rise at 5.26 a.m. in Boston tomorrow morning. No exceptions. God is somewhere within the rules to which we are subjected. The rule that none of us gets out of here alive. The rule that a sperm and an egg will meet and seed new life the rule of the survival of the luckiest. God is somewhere in the rule that we more or less reap what we solve, so the rule that you can't fool all of the people all of the time. Malcolm X's rule that chickens come home to roost. Dr. King's rule that truth crushed to the ground will rise again. God is in the sandwich and God is somewhere in the rules to which we are subjected. Eight years before he completed the origin of the species, the year was 1851, Charles Darwin's 10-year-old daughter, Annie, the light of his life, died. It was for him a massive grief. After her death, Darwin concentrated even more on his work he plunged into it to almost the exclusion of everything else, and maybe he was just compensating for his pain. But something else may have been at work in him, too. 
It may be that when our world has fallen apart, the rules of the universe can feel to us like everlasting arms. We find God in the sandwich, and we find God somewhere in the rules that we can neither make nor change. No exceptions. As we are called to prayer in the singing of Lead Me, Lord, I would invite you to pray in the manner which will help you to best support the prayers of this community. Please come and kneel or stand at the altar rail, stand in your place, raise your hands, respond in your first language, however the Spirit is moving you. In our prayer, I will set the intention, if you will respond silently or aloud to what comes up for you, and then I will say, in your grace, if you would please respond, hear our prayer. Dearly beloved, let us pray together. Most holy, most blessed, most glorious God, we are glad and grateful for your presence with us as Source and Christ and Spirit, for this time together with you and one another to lift up the thoughts of our hearts. We give you thanks for your encouragement by your gifts and fruits in our lives, for your empowerment to grow in love and to choose the good. In your grace of invitation and inclusion, we pray. For ourselves, as individuals, and for the communities of which we are a part. For our particular ministries in the world. For our ministry in and through Marsh Chapel and the Office of Religious Life. For the work of all the Church. In your grace, Hear our prayer. For the nations and peoples of the world, 
for the leaders amongst them, and for the ways of peace amongst us all. In your grace, hear our prayer. For creation, for our earth and air and water, for our companion animals and plants. In your grace, hear our prayer. For those individuals and communities who face particular challenges of mind, body, spirit, In your grace, hear our prayer. For the celebrations and joys of our human life. In your grace, hear our prayer. In all these things we pray and trust, as you pray with us in your compassion too deep for words. Amen. And now, continuing in our prayer together, as our Lord Christ has taught us, we are bold to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. peace of the Lord be always with you. We give thanks today for the presence of the Reverend Dr. Dean Snyder among us from Foundry United Methodist Church in Washington, D.C., his ministry of word among us these last two weeks. Thanks also to the Marsh Chapel Choir under the direction of Mr. Justin Blackwell for their ministry of music. We encourage you to come back in the following weeks. Uh, the next week, the next two weeks, the Reverend Dr. Charlie Eust will be among us uh, to continue our National Summer Preacher Series. We hope that those of you present with us today will join us after the service for coffee hour and perhaps another rousing game of bocce on the BU beach. And we hope that uh, you also fill out the pew pads at the end of your pew, our ritual of friendship, to help us get to know one another better and help you get to know each other better throughout the week. We hope you'll keep an eye on the Marsh Chapel website for upcoming events and also the opportunity for online giving. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God. It's cold. 
abundance. You are everywhere and in all things. Please accept this offering as our stewardship of your good creation, that we may live mindfully of your omnipresence and abounding love. Amen. kisses and the fevers and the hopes and the dreams and the struggles. There is love in the rain that falls on us whether we've been good or bad and the sun that shines whether we've been righteous or unrighteous. God surrounds us and fills us. Let us go into the world to be children of this God. Amen. 